Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. So happy Easter. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. If I combine all your like applause and happy Easter's with I'm sure the overwhelming response online, I think we got a good response. Because I know when you guys watched online all last year, if we said something like Happy Easter, you were shouting at your TV, right? Happy Easter. Like that was what you did, right? No? Just me? Well, that's what I do when I watch sports, right? I get involved. Because there's anything that sports has taught me, it's um, participation is more important than observation. Because I love playing sports. Blast. But I hate watching sports, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I lost my man card with some people right there, but... Uh, you know what I do like watching one sport? BattleBots. Anybody here a fan of BattleBots? Yeah? My family got Discovery Plus just so we could watch. All right, I, I think I'm losing some credit here, so maybe I'll just move on. Uh, I don't want to seem too geeky on Easter weekend here, but I do. I love BattleBots. I love doing things with my family, and my kids love BattleBots. Uh, and I think that's why I love Easter so much, right? Christmas has, it's focused all on the gifts. Like, the kids are waiting for the gifts, they're waiting for the gifts, they open the gifts, they're done with the gifts, and they're like, where's the rest of the gifts? And you're like, you mean the hundreds of dollars you just shredded across the floor? Yeah, I'm not, no, there's no more. Or like, uh, Thanksgiving, it's all about the food. You always say it's about gathering around the table, and it's, but it's about the food, right? It's about those, those canned uh, cranberry sauce. That's everybody's favorite food, right, on Thanksgiving? Right, I love that. You don't eat it any other time, though, just on Thanksgiving. Uh, but Easter to me has always been about this moment, being together with God's family. You know, does anyone here know that person that all year long they have a countdown to Christmas? Have you ever known somebody like that? If you're like, how many days till Christmas, Amber? They're like, 320. Or they'll be like, 230. They just know right away. Like, I have no idea. I feel like I'm kind of like that with Easter. I look forward to Easter all year long. And a few, few years ago, my family noticed that, that I like Easter so much more than Christmas but we spend like 600 bucks a year on Christmas and like 50 on Easter candy, and we usually buy it the next day to save money. So we started changing that, and we give Easter presents out to our kids every year. Last year, we got them iPads. I was a really cool dad last Easter, let me tell you. But this year, we're getting them piggy banks, because last year they got iPads, so now they need some piggy banks to save up for next year. But no, my family's trying to get free from debt. We're trying to be debt-free. We don't want to be trapped anymore. We want to change our life. I want to change my kids' future. So we're getting them banks. We're going to teach them how to save because that's what we're doing right now. We're going to teach them how to spend because I had a problem with that a little bit ago, and, and we want to teach them those things. But So I'm looking forward to uh, right after service, our second service. We're going home. We're opening the presents. We're, when my parents are in town, they're going to hide the eggs while we're here, and the kids will find them. It's going to be a blast. Um, and I'm looking forward to the rest that comes after Easter, because it's been a crazy week for me. How many people would say they had a crazy week? Yeah, Easter week can be really, really crazy, right? It's like Christmas week, but you don't get any, any like, support when it's crazy for you. People are like, what is this Easter? No, it's crazy. Um, those of you who didn't have a crazy week, I mean, church is usually not for perfect people, but I'm glad you're here. Um, the rest of us, we understand that the week can get a little bit crazy and zany. Uh, so I thought I'd give you a quick breakdown of what my week looked like. Uh, last week, our lead pastor, I'm not the lead pastor here, I'm the youth pastor, our lead pastor, Candace, got COVID. Uh, so with like 48 hours notice, it's, Jason, you're up to bat, you're preaching. I'm like, okay, I got this. And when we preached last week, talked about the Holy Spirit, and 
um, and, and God did some awesome stuff. But then Monday morning rolls around. Candace still has COVID, so there's things to figure out. I wake up, 5 a.m., my in-laws are in town, so I woke up to in-laws sleeping downstairs on the couch, and I got, I'm moving through the house quietly because I got to get out. I go to Lowe's, I buy some paint, I go to somebody's house, I paint their house. Uh, I've been doing some side jobs trying to get out of debt. Uh, after that, I come home, I help my wife clean up after in-laws being in town because, you know, I have, they're great in-laws, but when you have guests, your house gets messy. So we clean up, finish cleaning around 5.30. Our home group comes over at 6. We love the Hollenbach home group, about eight individual, eight eight adults, four couples, a bunch of kids, a bunch of kids, like 12 kids running around the house. And the Hollenbach home group's there, and we have a meal, and we celebrate, and we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we had a great conversation. People leave the house around 9, so a late night. Tuesday morning, wake up bright and early, come to work, have our staff meeting, film the FV youth service, edit the FV youth service, because we do it online now since COVID. And after that, we, we got invited to a friend's house for dinner. This is a a thing my wife and I are doing. We're trying to have people to our house for dinner at least once a week, or we go to someone's house once a week. And out of the 13 weeks of the year, we've only missed one. Um, we're, we're trying to be in people's lives because COVID taught me I need community. I don't know how many people learned that, but I need community. So even though it was a crazy week, yes, I went to somebody's house. We had a meal. We got home after nine, another late night. Wednesday comes around, film the church announcements. Doesn't Mel do a great job in those church announcements? It's not easy. Like, I know I make it look easy, but I've been doing it a little while. She's brand new. She's killing it. Um, to film that, I start my work for the sermon. I got to study for the sermon. I spend about eight hours studying some things we'll get into in a second. After that, I have to go home for FV Youth at my home. We have about 15 kids in my living room worshiping God, studying the word, talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Great time. They leave around 9 o'clock, another late night at the Hollenbach house. Thursday comes, wake up at 5 a.m., drive to my buddy's house to pick up that shiplap wall that's out there for our photo booth because that was the only time he had available. Drive it here, unload it by myself. By the way, that weighs about 250 pounds. That was a bad idea. Um, then I, I do a, a little bit more work for my sermon, and then I have to change gears because uh, somebody called into the church Tuesday, and they lost a loved one, and the memorial was on Thursday night, so I picked up. I have to take care of this memorial service. I was super Super glad to be able to help in that way. It was a great time to remember, but I had to prepare it. I uh, got my hair cut by Fidel, who's in here somewhere. Got my hair cut by Fidel. Rush? Yeah, he does a great job. Go to Fidel. Anyway, uh, anyway, so um, rush to the memorial service. I'm there with the family. We grieve. I, I do the message. I lead a, an altar for Jesus. And then afterwards, there's this moment where people are just about to start sobbing. You can feel it in the room. Something's going to break. And, and uh, the son, he, he grabs this, the, the sound system, and he puts on a song. And, like, everyone, it just releases the tension. People begin celebrating the person who passed. And there's that transition from sorrow to joy, the, the remembrance. And that was a beautiful moment. And every word I said during the memorial did not match the moment of people moving from sorrow to celebration. And then after that, came back to the church. I got here around 7.30. We had our Financial Peace University, another nine individuals trying to get that free. We're working on this together. Get home after 9.30, another late night in the Hollenbach house. Then Friday morning, wake up bright and early, 6 a.m. We got youth convention. What students want to youth convention? There's one. All right, most of them are going to be here second service or the backing kids. We brought 26 kids to a church in Harrisburg for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Amazing worship, powerful words, some fun, some games. We get back around 7.30. I hang out with some students for a couple more hours, get home at 8.30, and my parents are in town. So I stay up late with them, have some dinner, and get to bed around 10.30, another late night 
in Hollenbach. Household, Friday morning rolls, or th Sunday, Saturday morning rolls around. Wake up bright and early, get the bunny tour ready. Who saw the bun Easter bunny drive by their house this week? If you're here and you were invited by an Easter bunny, way to show up to the right church, just saying. Like, Easter bunny shows up to my house and invites me to church, I might be finding a new church. I'm just, like, that's, that's just pretty cool. So, so I'm doing that for a couple hours. The volunteers take over. I get some lunch with my dad. We come to the church around three. We finish the decorations. We get set up. We get home around six. We get some dinner. And then I finished my sermon prep and I went to bed last night. I'm going to say one o'clock because that, if I say later, you guys will be upset. Get to bed one o'clock, another late night at the Hollenbach household. I had a crazy week. I did. I had a crazy week, but it's not about me because my crazy week has nothing compared to Jesus's last week here on earth. If I'm complaining about having a little extra blessing in my life, getting to have a bunny costume, driving around in a Jeep, getting to be there for people as they celebrate the, their deceased father, if I, if I complain about a job where I get to make a little bit of extra money and provide for my family, if I complain about my in-laws playing with my kids an extra day and my parents coming out to spend some time with me, if I complain about these blessings... How am I going to treat the burdens that might come? It was a great week because I got to work towards serving my Savior for Easter weekend. I got to look forward to being here with you guys and celebrating Jesus. And Jesus, on his last week here on earth, he was celebrating. He was celebrating something big to the Jewish people, something so big they had to do it every year. As a matter of fact, it was their holiest day. Think Christmas and Easter combined. So the two days that we have to show up to church, right? The only two days the church is required, which it's not technically true. But those, those two days smush together and you get the Passover. Jesus, his last week on earth, before he was crucified and resurrected, was Passover week. It's a huge deal. It's a big deal because, and this is where we'll get into what Passover is, because it was when his people, the Jewish people, went from being slaves to being free. That's what Passover is all about. We were slaves, and now we're free, and it's God who did it. You see, the Israelites, they lived in slavery in Egypt. They were God's chosen people, the children of Abraham. And they, they end up, through circumstance, through God's divine ordination, they end up living in Egypt. And God blesses them and they multiply until there are so many of them that the great nation of Egypt goes, they need to be our slaves. We can't let them live free because they'll outnumber us, they'll outgrow us. We can't do this. Let's make them slaves. They become slaves. Millions, it's, it's believed, of slaves living in Egypt. And God goes, you're not going to be my slaves anymore. He calls out Moses. He says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. We know this one, right? We know, we know, let my people go. Moses says it. Pharaoh's like, no way. That workforce ain't going to happen. So God sends a plague. He turns the water to blood. The very thing that gives life becomes blood, which is a representation of life. And then he's like, nope, not leaving. He sends frogs. This is worse than the blood. Frogs are disgusting. Frogs cover the land of Egypt. He says, let my people go. He says, no. Lice and gnats fill it. Bugs all over the place. Then wild animals or flies come. Then pestilence of livestock. Their animals start dying. Then boils. Then thunderstorms. Then locusts. Then darkness for three days. That's coincidentally the amount of time that Jesus was in the tomb. I'm just pointing out to kind of darken tombs. You know, God covered, we, we don't have time, I got to keep moving. So then we've had nine plagues, Pharaoh still won't release them. God says, go to him one more time, say, let my people go, and if he doesn't, I'm going to get you free. I won't leave anyone in slavery. I will release my people. I will bring freedom to them. And he goes and he says, if you don't release us, God will kill every 
firstborn male in all of Egypt. Pharaoh's like, you're not leaving. You don't get this. Your God, with all these silly tricks you're somehow doing, he's not God. I am God, and I say they're staying. And then Moses, he goes to the people of of Israel, and he says, listen, God's spirit's going to come over Egypt, and every firstborn male will die, including the livestock, including us, if we don't do something. So we need to cover ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to get ready for his spirit to pass over us. We need to prepare. And then we read about the first ever Passover and the instructions that Moses gave them to protect them. Exodus 12, verse 5. The animal that you select must be one a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. This is the first thing he says. Listen, Passover's coming. Something needs to die. I don't want it to be your sons. I don't want my, 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 my children's sons to die. So I need you to find a goat. This goat, it must be perfect without defect. You can't give me something gross and dying, the sickly little thing. Take a perfect goat. Select it from among your herds without blemish or spot. You know why it had to be one year old? Because a one-year-old goat is a full-grown adult male goat. It's no longer a child. It's no longer an infant. It is able to be seen as an adult. Why was it male? Because it represents the entire household. It was important that it be without defect. Verse 6, take special care of the chosen animal the chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of the first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter, not a fun word, slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. Not a lot of people like this Old Testament God. They had to slaughter a goat? Yes. He said one male will die in every household. What firstborn will die? He says slaughter the goat. The lamb first, though, had to come into your home and live there for a couple days. You had to take special care of it. This is not a picture I ever understood. They didn't just pick out a goat, tie it outside, leave it out there with some water. It came into their household. I cannot imagine my kids living with a pet for four days and then going, all right, guys, that dies so that you don't. And them having to face that. That's what God said. So that's what they do. Verse 7. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the doorframe of the house where they eat the animal. So they have to slaughter the animal that's been living with them. They have to take the blood. They have to wash it on the doorframe. Maybe you came into church and you know nothing about this. Why is this guy talking about sacrificial goats and blood? This is not, I don't like, I don't want to be a cult. No, this is, this is traditional. You see, there was a sacrifice that had to be paid. And there was a mark that had to be made by the blood. Because God's very spirit was going to come over. And he didn't look at who was in the house. He looked at the blood on the outside of the house. Because the blood was a marker. The protection. The blood was a marker that the price had already been paid. That the people inside the house didn't have to pay the price of their firstborn son to find their freedom. They paid the price already with a perfect lamb. Then, eight, that same night they must roast the meat over the fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens. Do we have any health nuts in the house? Who here likes kale? You don't have to shout. I don't want people to laugh at you. Anybody like kale? Good. Oh, man. Carrie, I'm sorry. Kale is disgusting. But they had to eat bitter herbs, bitter lettuces, horseradish. Ew. Roasted goat and horseradish. This sounds just like a wonderful meal, right? But this bitter herb, there was a representation involved here. 
It was bitter to represent the sin. That when you eat it, you're reminded of the corruption in this world. That's kale. Just saying, Carrie. It's God's reminder that we sinned. Apples are his reminder that he still loves us. All right, keeping going. We're going to skip down to verse 11. These, oh wait, sorry, verse 8. I jumped ahead, Dion, my bad. Verse 8. I missed, they must eat bread made without yeast. I, I went back because this is important. I love me some white bread. Wonder bread, the softer, the squishier, the better. Bread without yeast is crackers, and crackers are a waste of time. So, they had to eat bread without yeast. As a matter of fact, it'll go on to say, uh, it'll go on to say in the next couple of verses, your house must be free of yeast. No yeast in the entire house. I have never had yeast in my house except for the bread that brought the yeast in, but they had to completely swipe, sweep it out. No yeast. You know why? Yeast is a fungus. Step sideways from a parasite. This stuff, if you put it in some bread, it'll spread. It'll change everything. Even the smallest amount will corrupt and transform the bread itself if allowed to foster long enough. God is saying, remove the corruption from your community because I'm coming. I'm coming and I'm going to pass over and I don't want anything corrupt in your society. I don't want any sin in your lives. And if you're working so hard as to remove every scrap of yeast, you're going to pay attention to the holiness of the event. They could have not even a single bit of yeast. Verse 11. These are your instructions for eating the meal. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency for this is the Lord's Passover. What is he talking about? Why do I have to eat this fast? It's already gross enough, goat and horseradish. I got to eat it fast now? God was telling them, be ready for whatever I'm going to do. You're going to have to leave in the middle of the night. He's going to free you so fast, you don't even lace up your shoes. Get ready because I'm about to do something. I believe and have been praying all week, God is going to do something here today, so get ready. I don't know if you have a walking stick, get it. I don't know if your shoes are untied, tie them because something is going to happen. Then on verse 12, on the night, on that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and every firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. Not a lot of people like this Old Testament God. He got Old Testament on him. You guys know that expression? Old Testament. Judgment and fire is raining down. But it was necessary. Let me tell you something. God will always do the least painful thing to do the most amount of good in your life. He didn't start with the death of every firstborn son. He started with simple things, frogs and locusts. But he just kept increasing because he would not allow them to remain in slavery. You might feel like things in your life are falling apart and it's not fair and it's not right. And why do I have plagues? God is going to do the absolute least to save the absolute most that he can. So when it feels like everything's falling apart, maybe it's God trying to bring it back together. A tough week like this week made me rely on him. Could not do it on my own. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you're staying. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. It is the blood that is a sign. It didn't matter how holy they were in the household. It mattered what was outside displaying to God that I am covered by the blood of the sacrificial Passover lamb. Some of you who've been in church, you know where I'm going with this. We'll get there later. We'll let everybody catch up. But we know that he looks at the blood. He looks at the doorpost. He looks at the extended blood painted on as a covering over the sins of those inside it. Then he says in verse 14, this is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate as a special festival to the Lord. This is the law for all time. When God speaks, he means what he says. This is the law for all time. Remember it. Remember it. Maybe you're sitting here and, how could I remember it? I didn't even know it. He's calling us to remember it today. It was designed. It was a special festival. They celebrated it every year. They made a huge deal out of it. It was remembered. And then in verse 15, actually, we're going to, Dion, we're going to skip down to 28. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And the night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons of Egypt from the first from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock was killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Israel woke up during the night and a loud wailing was heard through the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. I've been asked before, how could God be so cruel? First off, I don't speak for God in that way. I don't know. But here's what I know. He's got a plan. We say this a lot at FB Church. God is a planner. He's a planner. The Passover was a plan. He knew it was coming. He got ready. And he says, guys, I've got a plan. I want you to remember what I did because it's going to matter. It's going to make a difference. His plan for Passover was projecting forward the very last week of Jesus Christ. Every element of Passover is a prediction towards the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I was so excited for today, I was going to go through each and every one. And then I wrote them all down. I spent about 12 hours figuring this out. And I went, we don't have the time. And some of you are looking at your watch already saying, no, we do not. That ham is in the crock pot. I'm going to get home and I'm going to eat it. I don't care if you keep going. But God has a plan. My week might have been crazy, but you guys want to hear about Jesus last week? Jesus last week is even crazier. Monday morning comes, and he, he, he hops on a donkey and rides it. Jesus walked everywhere. He must have had rock-hard calves. But this time, he rides a donkey into Jerusalem. And, and on Monday, when he was riding that donkey, all the people of, of all the Jewish people, they're in Jerusalem. Remember, this is the biggest holy holiday. And it is a requirement of the law that they are to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. An entire nation comes to one place for a week. That's crazy. They're all there. They're gathered. And you know what? They're slaves again. Do you guys know this? When Jesus walked this earth, the Jewish people were being subjugated and ruled over by Rome. They went from being slaves in Egypt to being one of the greatest superpowers of all time. And then they started sinning against God and they fall and they fall and they fall and they fall. And then they go into exile and then they come back and then Rome takes them over. And, and everything they do is, is governed by Rome. They pay taxes to Rome. They got to answer to Rome. They can't even do their own stuff. But Rome's like, yeah, we own you. And they hate it. 
But God has a plan. There is a plan on this week. And as he's walking into the city, as he's walking into the city, they're worshiping him, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed are you, the son of David. They are saying, here comes our conquering king. He's going to lead us to victory. You know what? We're all here, Rome. There are tens of thousands or millions of us. We're going to overthrow you. We're going to kick you out because we got Jesus on our back. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He can fix the blind eye. So you know what, Rome? You got nothing on our man, Jesus. And they start worshiping him. And he's riding in triumphant on a donkey. And then they knew what was going to come next. When a conquering king came into a city riding normally on a horse, not a donkey, he would march right into the center of the city, the political power seat. And he would declare, this is mine. So all the people, I bet you they're lining up their coats ahead of him, and they line it up right up to the Roman gates of the of their strongholds where Pontius Pilate is living and Herod is living, and I bet they're ready. Just go right in, Jesus. We'll knock down the gates for you. And they, they got their coats. This is what I think. The Bible doesn't say this specifically. But it does say he did not go to Pontius Pilate's house. He makes a right turn, and he goes to the temple. And they're like, why, why are you going to the temple, Jesus? You're not going to conquer the temple. Okay, maybe he's going to rile us up at the temple. Maybe he'll get us going at the temple. Maybe that's where we'll start our overthrow of Rome. Finally, freedom. Just like God in the Old Testament. We're going to go Old Testament on him. Or tear up Rome. But he walks into the temple on Monday, the first day of Pentecost. Or the first day of Passover. Sorry, guys. And here's how amazing God's plan is. We we throw the word plan up there? Here's how amazing God's plan is. As he walks in to the temple. You know what day it was? It was the day of the selection of the perfect Passover lamb. The temple is filled with lambs. And the priests are walking around inspecting the lambs, looking for defects, looking for deformities, looking for problems. It was their job to pick them apart, to find the problems. And Jesus, he walks right into the temple. And again, it doesn't say exactly what he did. Here's what I picture. He sees a bunch of lambs and he just goes like this. He just stands in the lambs and he looks around and he waits for somebody to notice that the perfect Passover lamb had been provided. It wasn't a goat. It wasn't one year old. It was 33 years old and had been walking around them, healing their sicknesses, healing their diseases, and raising their dead. It was the perfect lamb. You know how we know that Jesus is the lamb? John declared it. John the Baptist, one of the greatest men to live in all time, he's calling all of Jerusalem to repent, and he sees Jesus in the crowd, and the Holy Spirit speaks to him, and he points, and he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God had a plan, and the Passover lamb was provided, and his name was Jesus. And he stands in the temple, and they start to realize what's happening. They know the imagery. They've been celebrating Passover their whole life. Why is he standing in the lambs? No, no, no. He's not the sacrifice. He's our Savior. He will defeat Rome. What's he doing? And then he turns, and he walks out of the city. And they're like, what what, what just happened? And that's Monday. Tuesday morning comes. He's walking out of the the place he was staying in Bethany into Jerusalem. He's walking up. He sees a tree. He's a little hungry. It's a fig tree. Walks up. He sees there are no figs. He curses it. And then he keeps walking. That one's weird. I don't know what that was. Maybe that's like when on my week, if I'm paralleling, maybe that's when I stub my toe and I curse the, the furniture. I don't know what, but he curses the fig tree. He's like, there's no fruit on you. I'm done with you. And he keeps walking. And again, he goes right into the temple. He's in the temple, and he sees for the first time, well, for the second time, actually, people exchanging money, ripping people off, having bad deals. And he goes, this is not the house of God. Earlier, when he was 12 years old, he said to his parents, why didn't you look for me in my father's house? He knew the house. And remember, the Jews had to remove all yeast from their home on Passover. And Jesus, he's not having this yeast in his house. 
He sees them corrupting the house of God, and he casts them out. He flips over tables. He casts them out with a whip. He says, get out of my father's house, you money changers, you thieves, you you stealing from the people of God. Get out, get out, get out. And he casts out the yeast again. And then he goes back to Bethany, and he he sleeps for the night. Uh, He's got a late night, I imagine. He wakes up in the morning. He starts walking into Jerusalem again. And you know what he sees on his way? The fig tree. And the disciples, they look at the fig tree. They're like, yo, that fig tree's dead. Jesus cursed it yesterday. Hey, Jesus, look, the fig tree you cursed. Every branch is dead. There's not a single leaf on it. And he looks at him. He says, of course there isn't. All the miracles I've seen, you've seen me do, you're impressed that I can kill a tree? And this is when I go, there's something important about this fig tree. You see, figs represent Israel throughout the Old Testament. You can look up in Jeremiah. You can look up in Ezekiel, the the many times where it says the fig the fig. They're they're the grape and the fig of the world, that they are to bless the world. They're supposed to bless this world. But Israel, he looks at the tree, he looks at Israel, and he sees they're not producing fruit. And he says, no more will you be the provider for the world. I'm going to extend it to all the world. You're not going to produce fruit, Israel. It's going to go to everyone. And he opens the floodgates. Heaven opens up in just a few days because we're only on Tuesday. And he, uh, we're on Wednesday, sorry, right? Yeah, we're on Wednesday. Sorry, my week's crazy. We're on Wednesday and he curses the fig tree and the fig tree is dead. And he's like, Israel will no longer produce fruit. He keeps going into the temple again. And this time in the temple, according to John's gospel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they start testing Jesus again. They've been doing it in his whole ministry. They're needling him. They're trying to catch him in a lie so that they can convince him to do what they want him to do. They wanted to control God. They wanted to say, God, we tell you what you do and you overthrow Rome. And he's like, I'm not doing that. So they needle him and, they, they, and he calls them out time and time and time again. And another part of scripture, he says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. These Pharisees are the yeast, the corruption that has worked its way into God's church, into the temple. And he says, get it out, not in my father's house. And he spends another day cleaning the yeast out. And then when he does that, the Pharisees are like, this guy, he's a problem. We got to end him. We got to kill him. And then Thursday comes. Thursday is the traditional day on Passover where you would slaughter the lamb. It's where you'd slaughter the lamb. And it's the day of the Passover meal. We're going to jump back into scripture to pick up everything that happened here on Thursday. Uh, Mark 14, 12. On the first day, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciple asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? They're looking ahead. They're excited for this meal. So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, you'll see a man carrying a pitcher of water. You'll meet him, follow him. As the man enters the house, Ask the owner of the house. The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you to an upstairs to a large room that is already set up. There is where you should prepare our meal. So the the two disciples went into the city and they found everything just as Jesus had said and they prepared the Passover meal there. So Jesus does this little thing where he's like, "I'll, I'll impress you again. Go, there'll be this guy, he's got water. You go to his house, that's where we'll have the meal. This is, this is weird. Like, why did this need included? The water that he was carrying, maybe you'll know the story. I bet you that was the water that Jesus ended up using to wash his disciples' feet. And he wanted to make sure there was a house where he got to do that for us, where our Savior got to serve us. And they have the Passover meal there. And part of the Passover meal, I want to just give you some context because I've never been to a Seder or a Passover meal, but it's very traditional. They had all these things they had to do. They'd have four separate cups of wine, which is way too much wine. Anyway, so they had four separate cups of wine that they would share amongst themselves. Each cup had significance. The first one, the cup of sanctification. Anybody here know that word? 
That's a big word. We, we use it in church sometimes. It means the cup of holiness, how they would become more holy. They had to drink of that cup. Then they had to drink of a separate cup, uh, the cup of plagues. And they would have sayings and prayers and food they would eat between each cup. And this cup of plagues, it reminded them of the pain of the, of, the, of the time in slavery, the pain that God had to do to bring their freedom. Then they would drink of the cup of redemption. This is the third cup they would drink of. And Jesus drank of all three cups, and they've been eating the meal together. And then they're having a great meal. Before they get to the fourth cup, Jesus is sitting with his friends, and, and something happens. Have you ever been to a fancy dinner and somebody says something and it's like there's a record scratch in the room and like everybody's talking, you hear the plates, can you picture this? You clinky, clink, clink, eating the food, you're, you're eating some goat, you put it in the horseradish, you go, Bleh. and then, and then Jesus has a record scratch moment and everybody goes, Bleh. and they look at him and they're like, what, what do you, what, what do you say? That's where we pick it up in verse 17. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. As they were at the table eating, he said, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here today will betray me. What a drama queen, right? They're having a good Passover meal. This is like when you're sitting at the, the Thanksgiving table and you got that one uncle and he goes, who'd y'all vote for? And you're like, what? No, not here. This is Passover. We're not doing this, Jesus. Greatly distressed, each one of them asked in turn, am I the one? Will I betray you? I see, I see 12 grown men, like, all offended and hurt. They're like, not me. It can't be me. And Jesus, Jesus says to them, he replied, it is one of the 12 who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scripture has declared long ago. How terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better that that man had never been born. Jesus is sitting with his 12 closest friends in the world, and he says, one of you is going to betray me, and you know what? It would have been better if you'd never been born. What? You guys have seen some drama, right? There's people here laughing. They're like, I've been at that dinner. I've heard that. Judas is sitting there with his master. Judas had already decided to portray Jesus. He'd already said, I'll do it for 30 pieces of silver, which is a lot of money. We've actually talked about that here at Freedom Valley, how that exact price was the price that was used to sell Joseph into slavery back in the Old Testament. It was the exact same price that was used to sell him into slavery. What? That's nuts. Now, now Jesus is being betrayed. He was sold by one of his best friends. And Judas feels a pain unlike any other. Can you imagine sitting across from the person you plan to betray and he, him going, I know you're going to betray me. You're going to stab me in the back. You, Judas, you're going to stab me in the back. And it would be better for you to never have been born than to do this, but you're going to do it. So go ahead and do it. I can feel that pain. I can feel that guilt. I can feel it. And sometimes people say, you know, Judas, he was just doing what God made him do. I want to, I want to carefully explain this. James 1.13 says, and remember, when you are being tempted... Do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone. The temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and sin, when it's allowed to grow, gives birth to death. Maybe Judas betrayed Jesus for his lust for money. He was the one who managed the money. Maybe Jesus betrayed Jesus, or Judas betrayed Jesus 
because he was known as a zealot. He was one of the people who wanted Rome overthrown, and he's like, I guess he's never going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist his hand. I'll get him before the courts. They'll convince him what's right. They'll fix it. I don't know why Judas did it, but uh, a pope once said, it is a mistake to think that the great privilege of living in company with Jesus is enough to make a person holy. Judas lived with Jesus for three years. He walked with him. He listened to him. He learned from him. You can be around Jesus. You can show up on Christmas. You can show up on Easter. You can show up week after week. You can be around Jesus. That does not make you holy. Judas was closer to him than any of us might ever be in proximity. But he was not transformed. Sometimes I think about Judas. How could he betray him even after Jesus warned him? And then I think of myself. How many times have I thought about a sinful action and then hours later done it? It wasn't, wasn't spur of the moment. It wasn't accidental. It was a plan. You always think about stealing before you steal. You always think about lying before you lie. You think about the addiction and you, you long for it before you take of it. You think about that affair long before you've ever gone to the hotel room. You think about that lust long before you've ever gone to the website. You allow the sin to slowly corrupt you, and Judas had been completely transformed by his own temptation to the point that the pain of fighting against it on his own was no longer endurable. The pain had corrupted him, and the pain that was ahead seemed better than the pain he was in. Pain transforms us. The pain of our sin. Here's the truth of sin. It corrupts and brings pain. Affairs might seem like fun, but they shatter families. Addictions might be pleasurable in the time, but they destroy lives. Porn might seem like it's something that brings you joy, but it corrupts and destroys you. It kills your life. Abuse of yourself and others destroys the very image of God in a life. Stealing hurts everyone in community. There is no sin that is, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's only me. It destroys. Sin causes pain. Sin brings pain. But it also brings the need for the passion. The passion. The word passion has a modern meaning that that we are familiar with. Love, desire, passion, uh, a a quick-made decision. I'm so passionate. But that English word has a Latin root. Not a Greek root, not a biblical root. This is just our own language. It has a different meaning. And that meaning simply meant, from the word, Latin word passio, meant suffering. Not passion, not the way we think of it, but suffering. The thought that you love something so much you were tortured by it. Suffering. And Jesus was often called the suffering Savior. He was called to suffer. His suffering was so great. His passion, so deep. I told you about the first four days of Jesus' week. We got to Thursday night, and Jesus had a late night on Thursday. So he went to the Temple Mount, and he began to pray, and he stayed up until Friday. He didn't sleep at all. He prayed, and he sweat blood because he knew what was coming. He knew the pain that was coming. He knew the suffering that was coming. The pain of our sin led him to a passion so great, he was tortured even in and of himself as he prayed to have it removed. But he said, not my will, God, but your will. Take this cup from me if you can, but if you can't, I'll do it because I love them enough. Jesus spent the rest of that night 
praying. And then Friday morning, Judas comes with those those Pharisees and they arrest him and Judas betrays him and Judas's pain and sin would eventually lead to his own suicide, his own death. That sin that you're allowing to grow will lead to your death. Maybe not here on this earth, but in eternity, death is assured when sin is allowed to abound. They brought Jesus into a courtroom and they brought false testimony against him and they accused him of blasphemy and they handed him over to the Romans and they nailed him to a cross. They beat him with sticks. They whipped him with a cat of nine tails, tearing the flesh off his back. They put a crown of thorns on his head till the blood got in his eyes. They covered his face with a bag and they punched him and mocked him because the suffering of the cross was so great on Friday night. He had to endure the pain, so much pain because this pain of sin was coming. He was welcomed in and loved like a little Passover lamb. He was praised and worshiped by the people of Israel. But at the end of the week, they looked at him and said, you must die. They handed him over to be crucified. He carried his own cross and suffered. He carried it up a mountain and he was nailed to it. And he asphyxiated on his own blood in his lungs, laid naked and bare, mocked and ridiculed for our sin. He was the perfect Passover lamb. No sin could be found in him. That crime they convicted him of, you know what it was? It was blasphemy. How could God be guilty of the sin of blasphemy? If you don't know, blasphemy is saying you're God when you're not. He said he was God, and he was. He was innocent, perfect, without blemish. An adult male prepared to take on the sacrifice for our sins, the perfect Passover lamb who passionately laid down because it was all God's plan. And that perfect Passover lamb paid the price to free us from slavery because on Friday night, he died on that cross. He was lowered and on Saturday laid in a tomb, a rented tomb because he didn't need it anymore because he would walk out Sunday morning in the greatest miracle that we have ever seen. Death was defeated in that moment when the Passover lamb was slaughtered and the spirit of God went over Egypt. Every single person died. You know what happened when Jesus rose from the dead? The Bible tells us there was a great earthquake and people rose out of their graves and they walked. The power of Jesus as the Passover lamb did not bring more death. It brought more life because he broke death. The sin that wants to kill you was hung on the cross with him to the point that he declared, Father, why have you forsaken me? No human being has ever endured that passion and suffering where God turned his face away from his own creation. He endured the full weight of every sin ever committed by every person before him and after him. The sin of Judas held him on the cross. The denial of Peter held him to the cross. My sin held him to the cross. And as he breathes his last breath, he declares, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand your plan. Because you've had a plan since Passover. Your plan was to remove the pain of sin through my suffering. And I'll face it for them. The weight of this message has been heavy on me all week. Because you've come in here with pain. Pain that you're so afraid to admit because if somebody knows, if they know, if they knew, they wouldn't even let me in here. They couldn't welcome me. I don't even welcome me. I don't even want to live. 
I'll take the pain of Judas if it ends my, my turmoil and my stress and my pain. That guilt is too much. I won't bear it. I won't face it. I won't admit it. I won't change from it. I won't. The pain is too great. You don't understand. I've sat at altars, retching up every bit of my lunch as I endured my own guilt that I hadn't given away. I know what the pain you're holding on to is. But I know all the greater the passion of my Savior. passion of his promise brought salvation. The promise brings salvation. There were over 350 to 400 prophecies about Jesus being our Savior. Each and every one of them pointed him to being the Messiah, the Christ, the Passover lamb. He walked this earth Another great man sees him and shouts, behold the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. There can be no doubt that he is the predicted Passover lamb, the lamb that was waited for. The moment that we knew we can finally be free, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, the Americans, the everyones can be saved. We no longer need to just seek his, we don't need to seek a sacrifice of a lamb. We need to seek his forgiveness by pleading his blood. It was the Passover lamb's blood is spread on the door. And as his blood was poured out for us, it covers you. The blood was on the top, like the crown on his head. The blood was on the doorpost, like the holes in his hands. Predicting for you a forgiveness of sins. A promise that was made, waiting forever. We're going to move on with this service in a moment. And we're going to take communion. If you didn't receive it, the ushers are getting ready right now to distribute it. But before we even do communion... It's too important for us to move on from this moment because your guilt, your shame, and your sin has had too much time. I won't give it another minute. If you want free from your sin today, I can't offer it, I can't provide it, and I can't bring it, but Jesus Christ can. If you're willing to say, I'm a sinner, it's painful to admit. And it's not, yeah, I stole a pen once. It's everything. My very nature is sinful selfish and deceitful, I'm greedy, and gluttonous and lustful, I'm hateful and angry, and you might look at me and go, no, you're not Jason, I am, I do the same thing to you, no, you're not, guys, I am, the greatest of all sinners, but when I confess my sin to him, Jesus said he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You need to admit that sin. You need to believe that that death on the cross was the payment of the perfect Passover lamb, that his resurrection, a day, three days later as he spent that time in the tomb, that that resurrection broke the power of sin and death. And when you believe that with your whole heart, he will forgive you. And then you can make him the Lord of your life. It's admit you're a sinner, believe in the power of the cross and confess him as Lord of your life. That will start the process of salvation. And then you get to move on to sanctification, growing in holiness, becoming a new creation. He will make it so clear. He will make it new for you. Would you close your eyes with, we've only got 10 more minutes left in this service. I'm gonna honor the time as best I can. But in this moment, in this very moment, if you'd say, I'm a sinner, I admit it, I'm a sinner, and I need the forgiveness of Jesus. 
I believe he died on the cross for me, and I want him to forgive me my sins right now. Raising your hand, you will be declaring Jesus as the Lord of your life, putting him in charge, forever changing the outcome of your life in this moment, receiving the promise of salvation. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand up straight, like you're waiting for your teacher to pick you for gym. All the way up. You need salvation. I need a new life today. I'm walking in a new life from this day forward. I'm not going back to the sin. I'm not going back to the pain. I want freedom, because I want it for you. Jesus wants it for you. He endured the shame of the cross for you in this moment. With your hands held high, I want you to pray after me. I'm going to ask all my believers in this room to pray this prayer out loud because it is a celebration and a declaration. You might not be making this decision, but you're going to pray for the person next to you out loud, declaring him as Lord of your life. Can we do that? Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I am guilty. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again three days later. I ask you to forgive me my sins. I make you the Lord of my life. And I will live from this day on a changed person because of your work of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask every person in Freedom Valley, every new believer, to celebrate with me right now because the Bible says they're celebrating in heaven. Good Friday is sad. Good Friday he died, but Easter Sunday he rose, and you're a new person, and you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. He's done it in my life. He'll do it in your life. This is the beginning of a new life. You've made a decision to follow Jesus. Text, I'm into that number on the screen. Let somebody know the decision you made. And let me tell you, this is just the beginning. The best is yet to come. The old is gone and the new is coming. We are going to celebrate with you as a church. We're going to rush around you as a church. We're going to love you as a church. We want to help you with anything we can because we're a family. And families celebrate together. So we're going to celebrate together in a moment. Maybe you've, you've taken communion before. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about communion but I want to take it a different way than I've ever taken it. Not as a reminder of the pain endured by, by Jesus, but as a reminder of the victory that we received because of him. I told you that there were four cups at Passover, right? Four cups they had to drink. Sanctification, they wanted to become holy. The, the cup of plagues, they wanted to remember their pain. The cup of redemption that Jesus would forgive us one day. We just received redemption in this house. You're made new and it's wonderful. The last cup, is the cup of praise. You telling me God isn't a planner? Listen, the Passover plan was that the pledged pain would lead to the passion paid and the promised praise. He's a planner. He's gonna do something here in this moment. Jesus started a new covenant. Remember how I said you must celebrate Passover, you have to, it says, you have to celebrate Passover. God was not light on that. He said, you must celebrate my Passover. It is the Lord's day. You must celebrate Passover. How many people ever celebrated Passover here? How many Christians, you've been a Christian for 40 years, you've never, I've never celebrated Passover. Here's what I have celebrated. On that last night, Jesus took that last cup and he created a new covenant, a new Passover. We call it communion. I'm going to ask you to stand as I read what Jesus said as he held the last cup. 
the cup of praise. And this is a cup of praise, not a cup of plagues, not a cup of pain, not a cup of sacrifice. This is a cup of praise. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it and he broke it into pieces. And he said, this is my body. Take it, for it is my body. He literally broke it into pieces. Every time I take communion, I crack it in half. Because his body was broken. My sin and my pain led to the breaking of his body. And they would have eaten bread together. They would have dipped it in a cup. They would have celebrated that unleavened bread, that perfect bread, that bread without yeast. We're going to do that right now. Would you take of the bread together, your Savior's body? Thank you, Jesus. And then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth. I will not drink of this cup again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't drink the final cup. He didn't drink the cup of praise because suffering was waiting for him. But he told us to. He told us to drink the cup of praise. The cup that was his blood. See, we don't smear blood on the doorpost of our house. You know why? His blood is inside of us. It runs in our veins. He has forgiven us. He's made us whole. He was the perfect Passover lamb. And this blood is a celebration. We're going to drink it together in a moment. And this is gonna be the end of our service. I'll pray to close right after. But here's what we're gonna do, Freedom Valley. You remember earlier I asked you to celebrate? You drink this down. Listen, some of you I know, I know you came from different places. You might've had some partying days. This is a small cup. You guys got there way too quick. I know, I know how it goes. I might've never been to a party myself, but I've seen movies. You shoot that down and you shout. You shout praise. You don't hold back. He didn't. He wasn't ashamed. I can't imagine being laid bare before the world to mock me for someone else. He did it. He did it. He won. He rose again. His blood gives us new life. Did you just hold it up to heaven? Jesus, we thank you for your blood poured out for many. You asked us to remember you. We, your children, who were saved by your work on the cross, by your resurrection and new life, we lift our cups to you. As a family, we say thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Celebrate, because he saved us. He saved you. He's forgiven you. You are a new creation. And here this Easter 2021, if you made that decision for the first time, you are made new. This is your birthday. Celebrate it. Write it down. Tell the world. Go on Facebook right now. If you're joining us online, you made that decision, you post it. You tell the world. Because I'm not hiding it. He didn't hide. Tell the world. Freedom Valley Church. This Passover, this Easter weekend, remember, 
Passover lamb who made it possible for the floodgates of heaven to open up for you. Because the Passover was a plan to fix our pain through the passion of our Savior and the promise of salvation. Have a great Easter, and thanks for worshiping with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.